Okay, Exodus 17 and starting in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, And called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Well, thank you for reading for us, Tom. Um, Please keep that scripture passage open. We'll um, be looking at that together. And uh, you'll find some space for notes on page four in the bulletin as well. But let's ask for the Lord's help as we uh, consider Exodus 17 together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness, your grace, your faithfulness. Thank you for the way that you demonstrate it here in these verses. Lord, we uh, confess that we're in need of your strength. We need your grace to sustain us. And so we pray that through your word, you'd encourage us and, uh, and strengthen us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we usually speak in terms of Israel's journey through the wilderness. I think I've already done that this morning. In reality, it was a journey through multiple wildernesses, plural. 
In chapter 15, they were in the wilderness of Shur. In chapter 16, in the wilderness of Sin. And here in chapter 17, they're in Rephidim. Soon, they're going to be in the wilderness of Sinai. And I think it's helpful to recognize this because it finds parallels in our own life journey. Thankfully, life is not just one long wilderness, as often as it may feel that way. Life has its ups and downs. There are high points like the oasis of Elim that we read about at the end of chapter 15. Then we hit various wildernesses. Maybe you can think of some in your own life. At times of pain, times of temptation, times when you are tempted to grumble and complain like Israel. At times when you really need the grace of God to make it through. Uh, We have to say this applies no matter how old or young you are. Uh, For example, kids, you may have had a great time in kindergarten. And then your first grade is rough and second through fourth are okay because you made some new friends. And then in fifth grade, things start to tank. And then, of course, there is the wilderness of middle school. Uh, As you get older, uh, there is youth, adulthood, middle age and beyond. Each age brings its own joys, its own challenges. Uh, God is faithful through it all. In his grace, he sustains us in the wildernesses of life. That's one of the things that Exodus teaches It's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that we read, that these stories were written down, not so much for the people who were there. I mean, they didn't need them written down. They were there. No, they are written down for us to provide an example for us. What that means is we don't have to learn everything the hard way. We can learn from their experience. Most importantly, we can learn about God, who he is, what he's like, how he has the power to sustain us. Uh, And this week, then, we come to Rephidim, uh, another wilderness. And and what do we encounter here? Well, we encounter another unmet need. Uh, The people, once again, thirst for water. Uh, And on top of that, we have an unexpected attack. Uh, They run into these Amalekite raiders. Uh, And the big question hanging over the text is the one that we read there in verse 7. As they encounter these various challenges, how does Israel respond Uh, Look at verse 7. Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord. Uh, And what did they say? Is the Lord among us or not? Is God really with us? And that's the question that we ask when it comes to unmet needs and unexpected attacks, isn't it? Uh, Of course, we know that God is everywhere, so of course God is here, but, but is he really with us? It is his presence amongst us to care for us and protect us, both as individuals and also in our life as a church, particularly maybe as we think about finding a new place to worship. What Exodus 17 aims to do is reassure us. In Exodus 17, God proves that he is powerfully present, and he proves this to a doubting and defeated people. Let me repeat that. In Exodus 17, God proves that he is powerfully present to doubting and defeated people. In the face of unmet needs, he proves that he is powerfully present as our source. And in the face of unexpected attacks, he proves that he is powerfully present as our strength. In fact, those are our two points today, if you're taking notes. Firstly, God proves his powerful presence as our source. He proves his powerful presence as our source. That's what we see in verses 1 through 7. And then secondly, God proves his powerful presence as our strength. His powerful presence as our strength. And that's what we see in verses 8 and following. 
And so firstly, let's, let's look at this first point. God proves that he is powerfully present as our source. In other words, precisely when he seems far off, when it seems that God doesn't care, God shows that he is indeed with us. And here is the grace of God on display. He doesn't prove his presence when we are positive, when we're upbeat, when we respond well to our circumstances. And no, God is kind enough to reassure us even when we demand, when we deny, and when we doubt. In fact, this is when we need his reassurance the most, isn't it? When we aren't doing well, when we don't really know what to do about our life circumstances. And that is what Exodus 17 is about. Even when his people fail in their commitment to him, he goes out of his way to reaffirm his commitment to his people. And to consider how he does that, we need to get a better feel on what's going on in this chapter. In fact, if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll perhaps have a bit of a feeling of deja vu. Uh, Maybe you're even wondering if I mix my notes up, are we accidentally going back over something we have already read in a previous chapter? Uh, And this is what life is like, isn't it? Uh, We encounter the same challenges again and again. And when we do, we often make the same mistakes. In chapter 15, Israel grumbled about a lack of water. And in chapter 16, they grumbled about a lack of bread. And, well, here we are again. Look at at verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1. Uh, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Now, it's important to see how this challenge came about. Uh, Why were the people thirsty? Why did they experience this unmet need in the first place? Is it because they had wandered away from God? Is this the problem with us, that we would have everything we needed if only we had done what God wanted? Uh, Would we be okay? Is the big problem in our lives that we've just been disobedient? Well, maybe, sometimes that could be true, but, but that's not what happened here, is it? You'll notice the reason they're here is, isn't because they've wandered away from God. No, it's actually because they've been following him. We read, Moses even notes their obedience. They came to this place according to the commandment of the Lord. God had led them through the wilderness with that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud. The reason they are now in want is because God led them here in the wilderness. And we have to say that actually the same may be true of you. In fact, the same is true of some of you, I know. Uh, The source of your frustration is your obedience, not your disobedience. Uh, For example, maybe you are single and would like to be married, and the reason you are not married is because you're committed to God's revealed standards in Scripture. Uh, You would love to have more money. You'd love to have a bigger house, and yet the, re- the reason you don't is because you're honest. You have integrity. You put your family first, and, uh, and therefore, for various reasons, numerous times, you've been passed over for promotion. Now, I could give many other examples, but, but hopefully you get this point. As we see in Exodus 17, following God can actually lead you into more trouble rather than out of it. And so, so what do you do when that happens? I mean, what are Israel tempted to do? I mean, we do the same thing, don't we? Instead of crying out to God for help, we get frustrated. We start to grumble, we start to complain, we we look for someone to blame, and in their case, they blame Moses. Look at verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now that word quarrel is really important. The word implies a formal legal complaint. Essentially what the people are doing is filing a lawsuit. 
Uh, Moses is listed as the defendant. Uh, but let's be honest, he's just a lowly co-defendant. Their real beef, well, their real beef is with God himself. Why do you test God? That's what Moses asks. I mean, they've been following God. Uh, at least, uh, the very least thing God could do is meet their needs. Uh, they'd followed this pillar of cloud. I mean, maybe it hadn't been written yet, but maybe they're familiar with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Uh, maybe that's how you feel. And so what do they do? Well, I, I'd suggest what they essentially do is they sue God for water. They put God on trial. And I have to say, we tend to do the same. In fact, I suggest this attitude uh, toward God is so incredibly prevalent in our culture. Uh, one commentator I read quotes from C.S. Lewis, who puts the, uh, puts the situation so well. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches a judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is a quite kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being a God who permits war, poverty, disease, he is ready to listen to him. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now, how often do we do this? Even as Christian people, we put God in the dock. Uh, in our own lives, our, our needs aren't met, and so we start to question, is God really there? Does God really care for us? Uh, I mean, in verse 3, look, look at what they say. Uh, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? What are they doing there? Well, essentially, they're accusing God of murder, aren't they? Uh, did you notice even Moses gets drawn into this? I think verse 4 is very interesting. It also reads like a complaint. Uh, Moses cried to the Lord. That's the right thing to do. But what does he cry? Uh, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Uh, subtext perhaps. Why on earth did you give me this job in the first place? Uh, why on earth don't you help me, God? Uh, I mean, most commentators agree. Moses' tone is, is a little bit off. But at the very least, Moses cries out to the Lord. That's the right thing to do. But the whole situation here is a mess. The people are thirsty and mad. Moses is upset. The people are ready to sue God. Moses is throwing up his hands and, and he's saying, what on earth, God, do you want me to do? And I'm sure the situation I just described is one that you can't relate to at all. Uh, you have never, ever gotten frustrated about your unmet needs. You've ever, never, ever wondered why God has put you in the situation in which you are. I mean, you've never wondered if it's time to lawyer up, to prepare your case against God. I mean, I think most of us have, at least in our heart of hearts. And maybe not in so many words, but at times you've questioned, is God really among us or not? And let's be clear, this attitude towards God is wrong. I mean, it is flat out wrong to complain to God like this. I mean, the ends of, events of Exodus 17 have become infamous. Infamous for an example of having the wrong attitude. I mean, Psalm 90, 95 verse 7 puts it like this. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day in Massa, in the wilderness. Uh, none of us has a right to complain. I mean, in fact, I have a friend, and whenever you ask him how he's doing, he always answers the same way. He always says, better than I deserve. I mean, I think my friend is spot on. 
Uh, we don't have the right to complain, but yet we do complain. Uh, and the question, I suppose, is how will God respond? File your lawsuit against God, and what do you expect? Fire from heaven? A flashing thunderbolt from the sky? Maybe that is what we should. And yet this is the amazing thing. This is the wonder of Exodus 17. God responds with great grace, great grace and mercy for his people. Instead of annihilating his people for their doubts, what he does instead is go out of his way. He actually goes out of his way to reassure them. He comes up with this dramatic way to prove that he cares. That's what verses 5 through 7 are all about. I mean, it's a little bit strange, and certainly it's, it's a little bit different from what we've seen in earlier chapters. In chapter 15, we saw God turning bitter water sweet with a, some mysterious log. In chapter 16, we saw this miraculous manna that appeared on the floor of the wilderness. Uh, but in chapter 17, it seems that at least for Moses, things are a little bit more hands-on. It's as if God is creating a scene. I mean, actually, this, it almost reads like play-acting. Look at verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Now, firstly, there is this parade in front of the people, including the elders. In fact, it's a little bit like the installation service we had last week. And then there is this prop, this prop that Moses has, the staff. And this plays an important role in the book of Exodus ever since Exodus 4. It emerges as this physical symbol of God's power in the presence of his people. And later on in verse 9, Moses even refers to this staff as the staff of God. Now, we'll come back to that when we think about the second point. But for now, what is Moses to do next? Well, well, God himself says in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Not only is the, this parade and this prop of the staff, now we have God's presence amongst his people. Uh, we don't know exactly what this looked like. Maybe it was the pillar of cloud or fire or something like that, but, but God would appear before Moses at this rock standing in front of the people. Uh, that's what God does for his grumbling, ungrateful people. Uh, I mean, what's the point of this? We should ask, uh, to what does it point? At the very least, this is a visible, dramatic display that, that God shows how much he cares. It, it isn't enough just for God to give them water. No, he gives them something powerful they can see with their own eyes. He goes out of his way to demonstrate his presence among them. I mean, remember the context. The people are quarreling. They're putting Moses and, and they're putting God on trial. And this is what God does. Uh, rather than judging them, it is as if actually God is willing to stand on that rock and to stand in the dock. He's actually allowing himself to face trial before his own people. And what happens next is perhaps the most amazing thing of all. Uh, look at how verse 6 continues. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Uh, maybe we could even act this out. I'm looking around for a, a volunteer. Maybe uh, I could get Anthony to come up and, and stand in front of the pulpit. This would kind of be the rock, and Anthony would be standing somewhere down there. Uh, I would take this music stand or maybe this uh, mic stand. I would go around, and I would, I would strike the rock or the, uh, the pulpit. Well, we have to say, I couldn't really do that without striking Anthony, can I? Uh, what is this about? God coming down. God being willing to stand on trial, standing on a rock, up on a hill, being struck with a staff, even with his own staff, essentially by his own powerful hand. 
And only then, as God himself is struck, does water begin to flow in the wilderness. Is this not a foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus Christ? I mean, it's hard not to see the parallels, is it? Doesn't this look forward to a greater day when God's people would grumble against God who would come in the flesh? When he would be tried? When he'd be convicted? When he'd be paraded before the people up onto a hill? To the time when God himself would be struck or when he would bear his own wrath and when he would hang there bruised and beaten and breathing his last, uh, would die on behalf of his people. I remember what happened as the uh, spear pierced Jesus' side. Uh, We read in John's Gospel that blood and water flowed out. Uh, What is this? What is going on here in Exodus 17? Uh, What is going on at the cross of Jesus Christ? Well, God is proving his powerful presence. Uh, God is proving his his willingness to come down, uh, to be with his people, to be for his people, uh, to be their only source, the only source of true life. Uh, God was proving that he is with us, even when we question it. Uh, God was proving that he really does care. He was proving that he can and will provide for us, even as we face unmet needs in the wilderness of life. As we walk through this fallen, broken world, we can do so because we have the promise of the cross behind us. The cross proves God's love once and for all. And with the cross, we need to come back again and again and remember, even when we fail, when we grumble, when we doubt, God loves us. We need to be reminded again and again of the kind of God that we serve. The God who, instead of judging us, came to earth to be judged for us, to receive the judgment we deserve. And this is what we need to reassure us today. I mean, some of you who are here today may even feel that when you came that you're, you're kind of on the edge. And maybe you're starting to wonder, to question God. I mean, is following Christ even worth it? Following him has, has led you to a wilderness, to all kinds of unmet needs. And if so, if that's how you feel, if you're wondering if it's worth it, then look to the cross. Look to the cross of Christ. Look to how God cares for you, his presence with you as your source. And in case you think that is a stretch, that Exodus 17 is really about Christ and the cross, I I want to remind you again of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Drawing on this very event, Paul writes that Israel drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ is the rock. Christ is the true source. Because of him, we don't need to doubt or question God's love and care for us. In Christ, God provides a dramatic display of his love uh, that even while we were still grumbling, complaining sinners, Christ died for us. And so then, when we face unmet needs, God proves his powerful presence as our source. Uh, But secondly, as we move on to verse 8, Israel now, uh, right on the back of that, face another threat. They face this unexpected attack. And it's in the face of this unexpected attack that God proves his powerful presence as our strength. God proves his powerful presence as our source, yes, but also as our strength. And the point here is this, that the Christian life is a battle. It always has been and it always will be. But in that battle, we are not alone. God is with us to sustain us and strengthen us and to help us keep fighting. I mean, look down at verse 8 and put yourself in Israel's position. I mean, so far they've witnessed a lot, haven't they? Uh, the last few months, it's fair to say for Israel, have been an emotional roller coaster. 
Uh, from slavery to plagues to the Red Sea to bitter waters to miraculous bread and and now having just witnessed water coming from a rock. Uh, Surely it was a bit of a time for a break, maybe a time for just a few weeks again. Maybe they could go back to the oasis of Elam and take a bit of a vacation. But no, look at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now the Amalekites were descendants of Esau, they were a nomadic people. I mean, imagine kind of the ancient equivalent of the, uh, the Tuscan raiders from Star Wars. Uh, they see Israel in a vulnerable spot, and so they swoop in. Uh, they're probably hoping to pillage some of, the, some of the booty they took with them from Egypt. And so Israel are forced to respond. Verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now don't forget, these men had formerly been slaves. I imagine it was highly unlikely that Pharaoh would have trained these men in battle. Uh, Men who were subjugated generally don't get trained for war. And so it wasn't so much that Joshua had to choose from so many outstanding candidates. It's not as if he had this amazing army, so he just had to pick his, his best, very best men. No, he had to try and rustle up enough men who knew how to carry a sword, who kind of, you know, had enough muscle to fight. And so you get the sense that left to themselves, Israel are in quite the bind. I mean, before this experienced raiders of Amalek, Israel are as good as defeated. Talk about kicking them when they're down. I mean, this unexpected attack has come to them because they've followed where God led. It's worth comparing this with what we've seen so far in Exodus, isn't it? This isn't the first time they've faced a powerful enemy. And yet, as they face this enemy, it's, it's a little bit different. Just a couple of chapters earlier, they sang this amazing song about how God fought for them, didn't they? At the Red Sea, before their own eyes, that God had defeated Pharaoh. They probably remember those mighty plagues they witnessed just a couple of months ago. But this is different, isn't it? Because we find sometimes God will fight for us. That was true in the case of Pharaoh. They didn't even have to list a finger. Uh, And yet in this case, they have to fight, don't they? I mean, don't you wish it was always that first way? Uh, This is how we want it to be all the time. We love for God simply to fight for us, to drive back our enemies into the sea. Uh, We'd love to have to do nothing just to let go and let God. But when it comes to Amalek, things are very different. In the case of Amalek, the people have to fight for themselves against this mortal enemy. They need to wage a real war with real swords. They need to risk their real lives to experience casualties and injuries. This is so often how it is in the Christian life. This is how it is in the real world. Does God sometimes just simply step in and take the threat away? Yes, he can. Sometimes he will. But sometimes you've got to dive into the ring for yourself. And I think, again, this is something many of you know all too well. After the service, maybe we could even trade some war stories, perhaps even compare some war wounds. Uh, But did you notice this is a two-pronged attack? It's not just that Joshua needs to muster up an army, verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for his men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Moses... uh, kind of gets the hill duty. I mean, maybe Joshua was wondering, I mean, do you want to trade places or something? 
Uh, Joshua is fighting the war. Moses is up on the hill. Uh, but then we see it there again, don't we? The staff, the staff of God, that symbol of God's power and presence amongst his people. Uh, what is Moses doing going up onto this hill? Uh, well, he's going there to hold up this staff. I mean, we don't know how he held it. Did he hold it like this or like this? We don't know. But, but while the staff is held up high, things are going well. And then when Moses' arms begin to sag, Amalek begin to prevail. What are we to make of this? I think if you've been around the church for a while, this is kind of a beloved story. It's one many of us know perhaps quite well. Uh, and the conclusion most people draw is this. Moses shows us the importance of prayer. I mean, yes, oftentimes we have to fight. Yes, we have to take responsibility for our challenges, but, but we shouldn't face them alone. We need to turn to God for help. You see, often we draw this sort of false contrast, don't we? We either think either we fight or God fights. But actually, it's both. We fight with God's strength. And I think this is a good point. It's a point well make, worth making. I mean, in Ephesians 6, when Paul talks about the armor of God, he follows it right up with a call to prayer. I mean, take our building search, for example. It's a great illustration of this fact. As we've already said, the team has been working incredibly hard. Isaac and the team are, I guess, like Joshua. They're fighting hard on behalf of the people. But that isn't enough, is it? We need God's help. Uh, and that is why, if you're able, plan to join us uh, in that time of prayer on, on Sunday, February 18th, and, uh, and keep on praying for God to provide. Or at the very least, set some time aside to pray, uh, perhaps on your own or together with your family about this. I mean, you see, we could also say this story illustrates that we shouldn't pray alone. In, Moses, uh, in verses 12 through uh, 13, we read about Aaron and Hur, I mean, it's a great picture, isn't it? But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and on the other side, uh, so his hands were steady until the coming down of the sun. Now, I actually heard one man refer to his wife in this way. He called his wife his Hur. Now, just to be clear, those were not his pronouns. Um, instead, the point was this, that his wife would encourage him. That she would lift up his fainting arms, especially help him remain faithful in prayer. I mean, how many of us could testify to that? Prayer is vital, and I do think Exodus 17 illustrates this. But as I guess many of you are thinking, I'm going to take a little turn here. Because as much as that's a good point, we have to ask, is that the point of this text? Uh, what I want to suggest is that that is not the main point of what's taking place with Aaron and Hur and Moses up on the hill. Uh, I mean, after all, think about the story. Think about how this story plays out. Where would you place yourself within the story? Which character would you be if you had been there? I mean, it's interesting. We all want to be the key players, don't we? I mean, maybe I'm Joshua leading the charge, or, or maybe I'm Moses up on the hill being supported by my Aaron and Hur. I mean, that's so often how we read the Bible, isn't it? We're always the heroes. Be a Daniel. Fight Goliath like David. Uh, but how about this? If you were there, where would you be? Well, well, most of us here are Gentiles, so actually we'd probably be on the side of Amalek, wouldn't we? Uh, but even if we were among God's people, where would we be? Well, maybe, maybe, I'm looking around the room, maybe one or two of us would be amongst Israel's troops. Uh, maybe we wouldn't even quite have made the cut. Maybe we'd be kind of hanging back, looking on. Maybe we'd be amongst the women and the children. 
We'd be regular Israelites, wouldn't we? We'd be there on the ground. And we have to ask ourselves, how would things look from our perspective? This is what you'd notice. Uh, You'd notice uh, how your success and failure doesn't depend on you. Uh, You'd discover, actually, that your success and failure depends entirely on the staff that's in Moses' hands, Uh, the staff that you'd seen before, the staff with which you'd seen him strike the Nile and and even strike the rock just a a short time earlier, Uh, the staff that symbolizes God's powerful presence, the staff of God. In fact, you'd realize exactly what Moses says later as he builds this altar. God is your banner. God is the one you gather around. He is the one who's truly in your midst. He is the one who determines your success or your failure. You'd realize, actually, that it wasn't so much your prayers that made a difference. In fact, you'd realize this. Actually, your hope rests on Moses and his role as your mediator. So long as he does what God says, then you're okay. God will be your strength. You will win. And yet, if he fails... If he won't intercede, then then you find yourself completely and utterly helpless. Hopefully you can see where I'm going with this. Once again, this points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Some have even drawn parallels with the cross. I mean, Moses is standing there up on the hill with his arms stretched out. Um, Is this a picture of the cross, uh, that Christ is our banner? I mean, Christ says this, doesn't he? He says, uh, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And now I think that might be a bit of a stretch drawing those physical parallels. And yet, I think it has to be true in this general sense. Uh, When we face unexpected attacks, where do we find our strength? Where do we find our victory? We need to realize it doesn't so much come from our prayers. That's not what makes the difference. We need to realize that our hope rests on Christ and on his role as our mediator. As so long as he does what God says... We're okay. God will give us strength. And if he fails, if he won't intercede, then we're completely and utterly helpless without him. But the good news is Christ has done what God said. Unlike Moses, Christ was completely perfect, completely obedient to the Father's will. He lived the life that we cannot live and died the death that we deserve. Uh, And now he sits before the throne of God. And what is he doing there? Well, he's interceding forever for the saints. His arms never fail. His strength never fails. And so can you see how God in Christ has proved his powerful presence with us uh, as the one who is our strength? In Christ, God isn't only the source of life. He's our strength, the strength that we need each day. I mean, through the, Christ, God has, uh, through the cross of Christ, God has revealed his powerful presence. Uh, and actually, he's even showed us that power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, God is with us. And that's what the cross proves. Uh, God is with us no matter what particular wilderness we face. Uh, whether it's unmet needs or unexpected attacks. Uh, even if, like Israel, frankly, it's just one thing after another, after another. God has gone out of his way to demonstrate this. In Exodus 17, through through signs and symbols, through this rock, through this staff. And now for us, through a far greater reality to which those signs and symbols pointed to. At the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And so don't, don't give up on God as if God has given up on you. He is with you. He is with us. In fact, let's turn to him now in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Uh, thank you so much for this, uh, this dramatic picture that you give your people uh, in two different times in Exodus 17 of your presence with them. And we thank, thank you for this rock that points us to Jesus Christ who was struck for us uh, so that we might have life in him. How we thank you for this staff that was raised up as a, as a symbol of the intercession of Christ, the one who, who is always interceding for his people. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us cling to these things, no matter how encouraged or discouraged we are. Help us, uh, Lord, to grasp a hold of these realities. Lord, help us understand that you are with us. Even as we gather around your table, Lord, we assure us of these things. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.